Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Martin Wolf, the Chief Economics Correspondent for the Financial Times, who has been called the, quote, premier economics and financial writer in the world and the, quote, Anglosphere's most influential financial journalist. He's the author of five books, including the must-read new one entitled The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. I'm grateful to speak with him about why he thinks the marriage between democracy and capitalism is coming undone and what can be done to restore public trust and confidence in the system that, as he puts it, is still the best for human flourishing. Martin, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Let's take the book's title and sequence, if that's okay. What is democratic capitalism, and how is it a marriage of complementary opposites? Well, this is the core of the book, so I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. I think democratic capitalism is fairly obvious in a way. It's the system we live in, in what we refer to as the West, though that, of course, also includes countries that are definitely not in the West, like Japan and Korea and, I suppose, Australia. So uh, it is a system which combines uh, democracy, by which I mean universal suffrage democracy based on representative institutions, which is the familiar uh, Western model, and capitalism, by which I mean a market economy um, based on substantially on private property, but of course open to government regulation uh, and underpinned by a rule of law, which is itself the product of legislative processes. So that combination is democratic capitalism. And uh, I describe it as a marriage of complementary opposites because I think there are fundamental principles of the market economy and democracy which are highly complementary. Uh, in the sense that they both rest on sort of basic ideals of individual agency uh, in politics or in economic life. Uh, they both rest on the idea, in some sense, of status equality, that we that there aren't hierarchies of inheritance in which there are aristocrats and people are born aristocrats and others are born serfs. All this is pretty revolutionary. We take it for granted, but it wasn't like that a few hundred years ago. And uh, so this makes them complementary. 
Um, and they're complementary in other ways. I argue that without democracy or something like it, capitalism uh, tends to get corrupted into various forms of anti-competitive crony structure. And, uh, and in reverse, without capitalism or some sort of market economy, the, the concentration of political power uh, in the hands of the government of those who runs it basically makes uh, um, democracy impossible because if the, if the government controls all economic resources, uh, you really can't mount a serious democratic um, elections which are in any way fair. So they, they complement each other, but they're opposites because obviously the capitalist economy it, it cannot generate highly unequal results. Um, while it, democracy, at least in principle, it rests on the equality of citizens. In, um, capitalism naturally tends in its political form to generate plutocracy and plutocracy is the antithesis of a democracy. It's a permanent threat to it. And if it doesn't generate plutocracy, often, and this is a big theme of the book, the democratic electorate then chooses a demagogic leader uh, to protect it, as it were, and Plato wrote about that, against the plutocrats. And in that way, you get autocracy, and you can get both, autocracy and plutocracy. So they are complementary, but they're also in tension. And we're seeing a lot of the tension in recent years. That's a good segue to this other part of the title. Why is democratic capitalism in crisis, and when did it start? Well, if I were completely honest, though I wasn't aware of it at the time, it's probably always in crisis, in the sense that, uh, as I explained in the book, uh, this marriage of universal suffrage, democracy, and capitalism, uh, the mark which we consider as a, the age-old Western system, is really less than 100 years old, or about 100 years old, basically, it was only in the early 20th century we got to universal suffrage. Uh, even as it developed in the 19th century, the suffrage was very limited on the whole range of ways, obviously, by race, uh, it's obvious, uh, but also by by sex. And uh, so it took a long time to get there. So it's only been around uh, uh, about uh, uh, 100 years at most. And a lot of the time, it's been embattled in the 20s and 30s. They tried to create democracy in, in interwar Europe after the First World War, when the empires had all collapsed, the European empires within Europe. And that led to complete collapse, fascism, the rise of Nazism and its disappearance. Um, it also led, by the way, to the Bolshevik Revolution. So that was a new democracy. That's another product of the First World War. And of course, even after the Second World War, vast parts of the world were run by autocracies. There are lots of autocracies coming back now all over the place. And even within what we considered very well consolidated democracies, those of the US and Britain, um, we are seeing very strong signs of authoritarianism and, uh, and the form of demagoguery that I mentioned. So one would have to say that it's always been embattled. There was a period after the Second World War, at least in the West, when we thought it was really solid, and a period again after the fall of the Soviet Union when it seemed absolutely triumphant. Uh, but it sure doesn't look like that now. 
you make the case that the recent string of political disruption is a function of economic failures rather than cultural ones. My former boss, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, agrees with you. He's argued that it's a case of revealed preferences. That is to say, so-called cultural agitations have arisen as an expression of economic anxieties. Why are the two of you right, and those who argue that the rise of populism is fundamentally motivated by racism, xenophobia, and cultural loss aversion wrong? Well, it's certainly generated by loss aversion. I think we agree on that. Uh, and because I think it's particularly important to focus on the rise of right-wing populism. And I, left-wing populism is rather weak at the moment. Itself a very interesting question why that is the case. I should probably have discussed it more, but I'll leave that to one side. But in the, can come back to it if you want, but in the, the uh, there's no doubt that people in the middle and lower middle have been experiencing a sense of loss, which is leading to anger and despair. And so this is what I think, if I understand it, where the cultural uh, and uh, the people who point to culture and the people who point to the economy agree. Uh, I th is the question is, what are they losing? And I would make, I think, I don't want to be too... Um, definitive about this, because my view, and I've been trying to be careful about this, you, know, you can't segment a human being and say, well, this is his cultural bit or her cultural bit, and this is her economic bit, because we're not like that, of course. Uh, we live in society, uh, and living in society, we are social animals par excellence, involves every bit of us. Uh, but what I would argue is that uh, they can't be separated either. And in particular, um, the, the sense of loss, the sense of loss of position, the sense of nostalgia is related very powerfully to uh, economic loss. I mean, I, think, I don't think that can be really much doubted that this is a very important factor. And I've explained many different ways in which those economic losses are crucial, particularly for the classic supporters, the people shifting to, as it were, the right-wing populist cause, who tend to be non-college educated people uh, in high-income societies like US or UK. Um, who uh, have very obviously suffered a decline in status and in economic position. Uh, actually, quite particularly true for men, who who seem to be very important in this. Now, I my theory is that the the extent to which people feel powerfully the the loss of cultural position is considerably exacerbated by the sense of economic loss. Um, and in particular, the sense that, that their, their belief that they were in somehow treasured, valued members of society, and therefore no doubt some say better than lesser people who were different from them as well in many cases, though not always, um, that, that, uh, that sense was related to their very obvious loss of uh, economic status and security. 
So I, in that sense, I think the two go together. I would add to this, and it's an important part of this, that I also think it's a tactical thing on the part of the people who run uh, right-wing parties, which is an absolutely classic thing. I called it the Southern strategy, but it goes far more than that, which is you base your power, if you're a plutocratic elite, in significant measure in a democracy in splitting the votes of people who are much poorer than you are. And one of the ways, well-known ways of doing it is on racial lines. So the, I don't regard the cultural conflicts that are pointed to and that's so deep as got having nothing to do with economic objectives because they obviously have to do with the economic objectives of people who run um, right-wing and centre-right parties. And, and that's not original. It's It's been clear for a very long time. But the final point I would make is we have to explain, it seems to me, uh, the timing. Uh, you know, these cultural conflicts uh, uh, about race have existed for a long time. Um, the immigration in the US, for example, hasn't increased in any significant measure at all. In fact, it's been, if anything, tended to fall in the last couple of decades. Uh, the, the civil rights and the rising and improving position of ethnic minorities, particularly blacks, is many, many decades old. Uh, um, so why is it suddenly boiled up into the shift from a Romney to a Trump or from a standard conservative government to Johnson arguing for Brexit? And I, I argue that uh, the crystallizing factor, just as happened in the 30s with Germany, which, I, which of course is a parallel, though of course incomparably worse, the crystallizing factor is the enormous uh, shock of the financial crisis on top of decades of decades of relative decline of the industrial working class, blue collar workers in many parts of the country where the manufacturing jobs were so important. So it seems to me impossible to have a good story of what happened and why it happened now, why this incredible burst of nostalgia happened without pointing to economics as a major factor. Is it the only one? No. Let's unpack those economic dynamics, if we can, Martin. Why have so many people and places in advanced economies come to feel left behind? Did policymakers overreach on globalization abroad and economic liberalization at home? Was there something materially different about the transition from a goods-producing economy to a digital one? How would you explain the growing numbers of citizens in countries like Canada, the United States, and Great Britain who've come to feel abandoned by democratic capitalism? I think that is the core question, and oh, it is obviously for me as an economist, and I devote much of the book to it. And my argument is, in essence, well, it's complicated. So I would divide the causal in, in brief answer, I've got two huge chapters on this, but uh, attempted a brief answer. There were changes which, and they're very important, which undermined the mid-20th century economic settlement, uh, which were essentially irresistible. Uh, and I think there were two of them. Uh, and most, both of them are really associated with deindustrialization. Um, 
uh, the first is we moved into an economy where uh, the demand for manufactured goods in our societies didn't plateau, but it slowed um, because we got most of them. And so we're in the replacement cycle um, uh, for most manufactured goods. I can go through the long list of them. Um, uh, so um, we shifted our spending elsewhere to services of all kinds, and we all know that. Uh, the second thing that happened is productivity growth in manufacturing has been extremely rapid everywhere. So we're producing not vastly more manufacturing. It's still growing, of course, but but with fewer and fewer people. Uh, and I like to say that manufacturing is following the trajectory of agriculture. Uh, you know, we produce vastly more food. Canadians know all about that. Uh, than we ever did uh, 200 years ago. But the proportion of the labor force working in farming has shrunk in most countries from a close to 70% to less than one, right? So nobody's employed in that. Well, in manufacturing, it's gone down in the UK. The UK was a real industrial nation. So 60 years ago, it was half of the labor force. Now it's 10%. Most of that is to do with productivity growth. Finally, of course, there's been a shift in industrial know-how to the rest of the world, and they're very competitive. Um, now, it could have been slower if we hadn't opened our economies, but I basically think it's irresistible. The, the, the tendency for know-how to spread across the world, that's how the Industrial Revolution got to America from Britain. Uh, it's just irresistible. It's bound to happen at some point, and that shifted trade patterns. And by the way, trade isn't the biggest factor by far. It's pretty clear it isn't. Um, countries with huge trade surplus in manufacturers like Germany have also had large declines in the manufacturing labor force, not to, to, to such low levels. The, but what we did do, and this is the, the, the where we get to real policy mistakes, those are the natural thing, is we didn't cushion it. We didn't help people. We didn't, we basically abandoned them and we abandoned the places in which they lived. We didn't think about what we needed to do in education and training and industrial policy to make sure there are new jobs, decent jobs for the people who lost out. And so they get very angry and they look to protectionism in one case, which I think will do little good to them. And I think the Trump experiment has shown that pretty clearly. It's really done nothing. Uh, but, uh, but the, but there is a clearly a, uh, a rage, raging anger. Finally, I would add, there are things we did which clearly made some of it much worse, in particular the sort of liberalization we pursued, notably in finance, uh, and the sort of com competitive competition policies we followed, increasingly allowed the creation of, I think, a what I call a rentier capitalist class, uh, which has become spectacularly rich and powerful, dominates all our corporations, um, and that has really created a plutocratic elite, which has, uh, uh, which are protect itself quite understandably. That's what elites do. And one of the ways it tries, they try to protect themselves is fund the sort of populism we are now seeing. That's a comprehensive answer, Martin. Thank you for that. If it's okay, I'd like to stay on the subject of financialization for a moment. It looms large in the book. And of course, it's something that you've written regularly about in your columns. 
we're coming out of a sustained period of low interest rates and cheap money. How does that fit into your story? Is it a cause or effect of our slow growth, poor productivity, and economic malaise? Well, I tend to think, uh, as is well known, it's more an effect than a cause. This is very controversial, I know, among economists. Um, and it really, that really was the theme that I've come back to it a bit in this book of my previous book, The Shifts and the Shocks. Um, now, there are two ways of thinking about this, uh, and they are linked, so it's difficult to separate them. First of all, there have been huge macroeconomic shocks worldwide. And to me, the best symptom of that, I can come to the cause, is the collapse in real interest rates worldwide since the mid 90s so and the and the collapse is is staggering basically from the peak to the trough in the in we actually have measures of index linked or real interest rates on bonds for the uk um the real interest rate has declined from peak to trough by eight percentage points which is as far as i can see unprecedented and i believe that's largely due to the phenomena associated with the entry of China into the world's economy and uh, the uh, the collapse in investment, uh, a lot of which is to do with the economic forces I talked about and aging in the high-income countries. So there was a big shift worldwide in savings relative to investment, and that depressed real interest rates. That, in turn, naturally led to a rise in real asset prices, equity prices, also housing prices, uh, and those were the phenomena we saw. Now, policymakers realized there was, because they could see it, these disinflationary forces, having gone into the direct effect of Chinese, the China price, as it's called, the, the falling prices of China goods. We have found disinflationary forces in the world, directly and indirectly. And the policymakers naturally found that if they wanted to hit any sort of positive inflation target, their monetary policy had to get looser and looser. Uh, and by the way, for decades, they couldn't raise inflation at all. Uh, I, I've just written a piece uh, t today, actually, on, uh, as we're talking, uh, on uh, the Japan problem. And Japan is trying to deal with the consequences of these processes, which were extreme in their case, for about 30 years. and. They've had 30 years of near zero rates, and they still are mainly worried about how, how to get inflation up. This isn't normal, so it's pretty obvious there's something structural going on in the world economy that has driven central banks into these low interest rate policies. Now, I think it is valid to argue that we could have possibly chosen other policy responses, but they were really ruled out. It would have meant almost certainly bigger fiscal deficits, or more dramatic shifts in the income distribution, because one of the reasons for the excess savings in the developed world, and there's some very good literature on that, which I've written about, is simply the distribution of income from people who spend a lot to people who save a lot, which is to do in part with the financialization you address. So there are a combination of factors that have tended to drive down real interest rates and force central banks to hyper-expansionary policy. 
And I think if they, given what was going on, which central banks did not control, if they hadn't done this, we'd all have become Japan or worse. So that doesn't strike me as a very sensible solution. And so I've always thought the people who've argued for that are basically saying we should have another Great Depression, and I think that's pretty stupid, um, quite a rough, apart from the fact that it's pretty immoral. Uh, so I'm not in favour of that. The the um, the problem is, uh, however, clearly a very deep one. I think, then you will ask me, well, what's going on now? Well, my answer to what's going now on now, and we really can't be sure, is I believe this will probably prove to be a blip, a big blip. That is to say, we've got higher inflation because they made some serious monetary policy and fiscal mistakes in 2020 and 2021. Perfectly understandable, given the enormous unprecedented shock, people make mistakes. That's fine. We're now correcting them. And then we've got a war. So we've had the massive inflationary shocks. Uh, but my guess is we will find at the end of this that things have not changed so much and we're going to go back to a low inflation, low interest rate world and the central banks will be driven back down. Now, I could be wrong. It, it, there are intelligent people who argue that that period of 30 odd years, which I'm talking about, is now completely over. And if so, we're going to have to operate policy in a different way. But the idea that somehow we could do something completely different, which avoided the low interest rates and the zombie companies and all the rest of it, without just pitching us into a, into a huge depression, um, just I just don't buy. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, it's just such a fascinating backdrop to your broader story. Thank you for sharing those insights, Martin. Let me come back to politics for a minute before we end our conversation by discussing what we can do to stave off a further democratic capitalism the book places a real emphasis on the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol and Donald Trump's absence from Joe Biden swearing in two weeks later. What do these events signify for you and why are they so important for your story? Well, I think that a wonderful question. And I think, unfortunately, when I look at what's going on now in the U.S., it seems to be getting worse all the time uh, uh, in terms of voter suppression. Uh, the, the the uh, spreading of the big lies about the election uh, um, and so on. So let me make basically two points. Here I think my view has changed a little, not fundamentally, but it's. I think there's something going on that is US specific. Um, but then, as I point out in my book, the US is simply so important for the history and future of democracy and democratic capitalism, that it's an exception that makes the rule. It doesn't prove it, it makes it. So um, 
the basic logic of democracy, any sort of democracy, the most fundamental logic of democracy is pretty straightforward. Um, you need uh, fair elections, which are, you know, they are in accordance with the rules, which allow the people entitled to vote to vote and to vote freely. You uh, you you need uh, uh, to allow um, both those in power and those who are not in power to campaign uh, freely again in accordance to the same rules, um, and you have to accept uh, the outcome as agreed by all you know by the independent institutions. Every democracy is established to to oversee elections and ensure that they're fair. Um, this is, you know, this is democracy 101. This isn't difficult stuff. You can then get lots of discussion about well, how much freedom should a government have, what sort of constitution you have. There are lots of things, but that's 101. So, uh, so democracy 101 includes a very simple proposition that, both sides accept the legitimacy of a legitimate outcome and recognize the legitimacy of the winner. It's simple. And what happened in the US in the last presidential election is that the losing candidate accepted neither. He didn't accept the, the, uh, the legitimacy of the outcome. In fact, he's consistently denied it was legitimate. And he didn't accept the legitimacy of his successor. And he showed that very clearly by not being there at the inauguration, which is in the US an absolutely standard way of recognizing the legitimacy of the election and the legitimacy of the president. You know, the president is dead, long live the president, so to speak. Um, it's not only that Trump violated this absolutely fundamental principle, but he has got his party's representatives to align with him pretty well completely, particularly in the House of Representatives. He received no real censure from his party. He is still its most viable candidate for the next election. He got crucial media associated closely with the conservative cause and with his party, notably Fox, to support his lies, even though the people doing it as we now know publicly, were perfectly aware that they were lies. So we have, in my view, essentially a Goebbels-level campaign to undermine the legitimacy of the absolutely core practice and institution of democracy, namely elections. And if or when uh, Trump or someone similar becomes president, I do expect them to try and make their lie real by making sure that there won't be any more fair elections, by which I mean, by, by which I mean elections that go against them, or the bubble, they mean elections that go against them. Now, the thing that I've changed is I now realize even more fully than when I wrote this, that what is going on here has also, and this has been going on obviously for 50, 60 years, the importation into the Republican Party with the shift of the South from the Democrats to the Republicans from the 70s onwards 
of the, the core political practice of the American South, which has always been voter suppression on ethnic lines. And that, of course, makes the cultural aspects of it stronger. But again, I think it's gone national because so many people are willing to listen to these lies because they're so unhappy and so miserable, and they think Trump is their great protector. But to me, everything that's happened, and I point, among other things, to the defenestration from the party of hyper-conservative people like Liz Cheney, whose crime was telling the truth, none of this is consistent with the survival of democracy in any form we could recognize it. If it is any sort of democracy, it's the sort of democracy Alabama run, ran in the 1930s, and that's not a democracy that anyone in the rest of the world would recognize as a democracy. That's a sobering answer. Let's turn our conversation to possible public policy solutions to address some of the underlying issues that are contributing to this legitimacy crisis in, in democratic capitalism. The book cites the, quote, hollowing out of the middle class as a crucial determinant in the, the growing crisis that we've been talking about so far. The rise of so-called job polarization has witnessed the relative decline of mid-skilled jobs in virtually every advanced economy. A lot of those jobs in Canada, similar to the United Kingdom, were in the manufacturing sector. Assuming we can't restore those jobs, how do we create a new generation of middle-class employment? What are the policy tools to get us there? I think this is an enormously difficult question, and I have probably too, ma too many words discussing all the different things that need to be done to make this uh, possible. But to simplify, I have a section in which we, uh, in which I suggest there are basically two things we can do, neither of which are perfect solutions. First, we can create, well, three. We can create more good jobs by investing in them, and in particular, investing in the sort of technologies that are likely to generate new jobs and good new jobs. Uh, and we can see lots of pretty good new jobs have been raised. Second, we know most of those go to graduates. And uh, and I think, though it's not a perfect solution, the policies many governments, certainly including your own, uh, have pursued in spreading um, investment uh, educational opportunities and improving educational opportunities are central uh, if we're going to create more good jobs and more people from different classes come to who can enter those jobs, uh, and the and the um, uh, there are some really big problems in some countries in opening access to more people to good universities. There's clear signs of declining social mobility. Uh, I think this is pretty obvious in the U.S., where which used to be the leader in the world in this respect 40, 50 years ago, is now far from it. So education is crucial. And that combination might do us better in terms of generating good jobs. And, but the other thing is we can make the existing jobs better. And that, so I believe, I've come to believe very strongly in much higher minimum wages, uh, you know, I believe I've come to believe in things like you know good maternity leave, childcare, um, uh, earned income tax credits, or similar wage subsidies to raise the incomes of people at the bottom. Um, uh, support again for training, not in 
something my wife is very involved in, not just for the universities, but to make sure that people who lose jobs, the, the Scandinavians have been very good at this. Really, you really provide a lot of government support, public policy support for retraining and re-education for people for the jobs that are available, allowing people to go back to education, including university education, as they get older. It may be that somebody missed out when they, they were 18. Maybe they can go when they're 35. I think we have to, so the combination is really invest in good jobs and really invest in making existing jobs better. And I think we have some models, particularly Scandinavia, also Germany, uh, where they've done pretty well. And I think this is the sort of model that we have to follow rather than make people feel that they've lost the only decent job they have had. Everything else is going to be a terrible minimum wage job. And that creates all the despair we see so clearly declining life expectancy, which is happening also in the UK. It's very, very depressing. None of that, I think, is necessary. For those who favor a more globalized economy, what trade-offs do we have to accept to the model of globalization? Do we need institutional reforms? Should modern trade agreements permit more scope for national governments in policy areas like intellectual property or procurement? How do we rebuild the settlement in favor of globalized exchange of people, goods, and capital? Well, I think that I feel that I haven't discussed this at length. The, the, the most difficult one, in a way, is capital, which we put the least focus on. And it links with the, the, the broad financialization problem. Uh, and I do need to, th- to think, I think we do need to think about the mobility of capital and how it operates and how far is it actually operating for the general welfare. So I start with capital, which, by the way, is the least regulated, least controlled part where the WTO is in no way involved. Uh, and of course, this is a power thing. Now, it, we talk about trade is basically trading goods. Trading services is limited, and there's some areas of trading services like online communication, which no one's really going to be able to stop unless they're the Chinese government, and we're not going to be the Chinese government. So there's some jobs we'll lose as a result. But I think the uh, in goods, we have a number of areas we can look at. Part of these are security issues about trade with China. Part of them is about Supply chains, we know about that. It's pretty, pretty uh, straightforward. Um, I think intellectual property is a big issue, but it cuts both ways. Uh, uh, you, you know, we want to, to, if we want to preserve our intellectual property, uh, I think it's very important that we don't take the position we will never allow anybody else in the world to use our intellectual property because part of the the opportunities in the world as a whole, including for ourselves, has always depended on other people being able to exploit ideas. Ideas are, in some sense, public goods. Trying to to wall them off imposes very, very real, very, very real uh, costs. I think we need proper adjustment assistance. I think we need. There are some areas where we're just never going to get. We, we're, it's probably too late now, but we're not. Ne- never going to 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 get our people to work again we're not going to get 
people people in the West to go back to working in sweatshops, for God's sake, or at least I hope not. That would just be ridiculous, competing with women in Bangladesh. I mean, that's just absurd. Uh, so we need to give people, as I said, training, uh, adjustment assistance and so forth, so they move into more skilled jobs in which we actually have a comparative advantage. And that will continue to to develop and evolve. There's nothing we, I don't feel that anything in the last 200 years suggests we can stop that sort of process. So adaptation and adjustment is essential in the in the area of trade, but we have to preserve our security. We have to, and we have to make sure that the capital markets don't run amok in all sorts of ways. A penultimate question. How do we get our economy growing faster? Is there something predetermined about our current experience with secular stagnation, or can we reasonably expect higher rates of, of economic growth? I had also discussed that at very great length, and the answer is, I think, um, we don't fully understand what's happening. Uh, it's been a bit of a puzzle. Uh, it's not just to do with interest rates. It's pretty clearly been there now for decades, except the brief blip upwards in the 90s associated with the development of the internet. I think as far as uh, um, secular stagnation, which I consider predominantly a demand phenomenon, we can do a lot by promoting more investment. And there's an obvious area for the world to promote investment, which is in the green transition. So we could do a lot more investment, generate a lot of demand, and increasingly a lot of it, not all, looks as though it's going to be quite competitive. It may even lower the price of energy for many for many countries. Um, less true for Canada, obviously, but Canada's un pretty unique as a, as a rich energy-producing country. Uh, the um, so I think there's a real opportunity there. The big problem I feel is, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the pessimists here, and I may be, of course, wrong, but there's a very famous book, I think wonderful book, written by Bob Gordon, American economist, a few years ago, uh, on the rise and fall of American growth, or maybe it's the rise and decline, I can't remember exactly. But his basic idea is, in the end, how fast growth is depends on the, the opportunities we have for improving the productivity of what we do. And the crucial point he made is that between 19, 1880 and about 1960, we, we revolutionized everything. There was no area of the economy where there weren't fundamental transformations. And in the last 60, 70 years, most of the transformations are associated with IT. Uh, and IT is important, but actually it's not that important. There's so much of the economy that isn't at least so far affected by it. Now, maybe IT will be the transformative wonder, and, and then productivity will explode, but it will also clearly create gigantic adjustment problems for humanity. But that is the only thing I can see apart possibly the green transition, which will be completely uh, uh, transformative. But what makes it so difficult to raise productivity, in my view, is a very simple proposition. Apart from the lack of cross-the-board revolutionary change, uh, and I've got a whole slew of ideas on that which we can't go to. But the basic point is, 
anything we could generate massive productivity improvements in, like agriculture and like manufacturing, we don't employ many people anymore because that's the revolutionary transformation. We can produce all the goods we need with about 12 or 13% of the labor force. Uh, extraordinary idea. Uh, now, well, once you've got down to, say, 15%, let's be generous, 15, maybe even 20% of the labor force, it doesn't matter how fast productivity growth in those sectors are. It doesn't change aggregate productivity very much. Um, but the d other areas where, which, where productivity growth is very low, like restaurants and education and health and household services and personal services and looking after old people and looking after young people, children. We find really hard to raise productivity. You know, the number of adults you need to look after the children under five has not been changed by technology. Uh, and you may believe that robots will do it all, but I must say I don't expect it. But this is important. These are, you know, in America now, the health sector is almost double the size of the manufacturing sector. So it's, productivity, raising productivity in the health turns out to be really, really, really hard to do, and we're not making much progress in it. So I think one of the reasons productivity growth is so slow is it's we are the victim of our own success. I'm not the only person who's argued that. I cite a very interesting book uh, um, on that very subject. Essentially, we've done the easy stuff. This is also Tyler Cohen's argument uh, in one of his books. Uh, uh, we've got the low-hanging fruit. We have revolutionized what was easy to revolutionize, and what's left is stuff where it's really difficult to transform fundamentally our productivity. Cooking food is still a basically a hopelessly labor-intensive event. Maybe we can make some of it by machine, yes. And there are robots, but it's much more difficult than running a Ford motor plant or Foxconn, which is why the, the those little goods get cheaper and cheaper all the time and more productive all the time, and they matter less and less in the total GDP. You've been so generous with your time, Martin. Let me just put a final question to you. At this point, are you optimistic or pessimistic that we'll ultimately overcome the crisis in your book's title? I think right now, I go up and down. Right now, it's 50-50. Uh, and not better than 50-50. I was very pleased, though I hated the, the reason that there was some unity of the Western powers in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We saw that rightly as a fundamental violation of core principles. I was pleased uh, that you know, Joe Biden won the election, uh, that he is president, uh, and that Trump lost. Uh, I was pleased by the midterms. I'm pleased that British politics is returning to normality, however, and that most of the right wing populists in Europe look. Um, Either they're becoming normalized, they're behaving like normal people, most of them, and their societies are becoming more resistant to this. But I'm still very, very disturbed by the direction of the Republican Party and the likely candidacy of Donald Trump. Uh, I'm very, very concerned by the spread of what liberal democracy or just outright 
uh, autocracy in much of the developing world. Concerned by what's happening in India, which is a very important country, uh, in Turkey, Brazil is a temporary hiatus, maybe. Uh, China and Russia are increasingly self confident and increasingly assertive. So I would have to say that we would have, at least from my perspective, that if you're asking, will democracy, liberal democracy, which I believe in passionately, as incomparably the least bad system humanity's discovered, and the one that people mostly love. You know, people don't migrate to China, they migrate from it. Uh, the, it's pretty obvious. Um, but I would say uh, that there are, there's real treason, from my point of view, going on. There are rich, powerful people who are supporting the suborning of democracy and its replacement with outright plutocracy or dictatorship. And we have to be realistic and recognize 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, for sure, I would never have imagined this, so I was a fool, but it seems to be realistic. We're in a battle. We're in a huge battle. And some of the battle is in the most important country in the world, from our point of view, the United States, your southern neighbor. So I'm alarmed, but the battle goes on. Well, if listeners want to understand the causes of that battle and ultimately how to win it, I'd strongly recommend they read The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Martin Wolf, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.